It's my delight and my privilege to have my dear friend Janet Parshall back on the podcast. Janet has been consistently profiled as one of the top 100 talkers in Talkers Magazine, a leading trade publication in the talk industry. In 2008 and 11, she was awarded the NRB On-Air Personality of the Year Award. Janet has served on boards and including Concerned Women for America, the National Religious Broadcasters. She has received the Excellence in Communication Award from Women in Christian Media. And I would take another 10 minutes to read the rest of her vita. She has been on mainstream media, Crossfire, Hardball. Some friends aren't old enough to know what Hardball is. <laughs> yeah, <you're right>. <laughs> <laughs> Larry King Live, uh, Donahue. Donahue, that's another mm-hmm. old, old relic. 700 Club, Hannity and Combs. Combs is no longer with us. Aaron Brown, also on and on it goes. You graduated from Carroll College in Wisconsin, twice appointed by Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson to the Wisconsin's Women Council. You know, our friend Rob Schwartzwalder wrote for Tommy. Really? For a period of time. Wow. Small world, isn't it? Unbelievable. Several books. The latest, Buyer Beware, Finding Truth in the Marketplace of Ideas. She and Craig live outside Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia. Four kids, six grandkids, a couple of goats, sheep, uh, camels, any camels? Not yet, yet? nope. (laughs) You got to get a biblical thing going there. Come on. I live next to a vineyard, so I'm really all New Testament over here. (laughs) Yeah, Yahtzee, Yahtzee, Yahtzee. All right, I want to go to work here. So three things I had asked you to think about, and we can go lots of ways with this. One of my frustrations, and I wanted your opinion on this because you're the expert, not me. Rules for thee but not for me. What happened to our rule of law where, whether it was the chief justice or a state justice was supposed to enforce laws, and we could talk about any protest, I don't care which one you want to mm-hmm. pick, BLM, CRT, Antifa, even January 6th. What happened to rule of law, Janet? Well, let me give you, if I can, a theological response and then a cultural one. And sometimes they diverge and sometimes they intersect. First of all, I look at my map, my map of what's going to happen in the days ahead, and I realize that the book of Matthew says we're going to go through a period of lawlessness. This is a hallmark of moving into the end times, where man is basically (laughs) doing what's right in his own eyes. And so we're seeing that. None of that surprises me. It reminds me also that I think God instituted government, and certainly our founders said this. If you read the Federalist Papers, if you read the dialogue, between Adams and Jefferson, they knew that because of the basics in nature of man, we needed the restraint of government. And that's really what government does. It provides a kind of restraint for us given our behavior, that it's a level playing field, that we are all expected to behave in a certain way, and that there is, in fact, equal justice under law, and that there is equality among human beings. That was the precept on which they built all of this. So that was supposed to be the way we started out, and we did pretty well for a couple hundred years, but in these last few years, we have seen that dissipate completely. And I think as a result of that, what we're seeing, and I'm going to get a little philosophical here, is what I see, cultural situational ethics. Any means whatsoever is justifiable as long as it gets you to your desired end. So if you decide that you want to violate 18 U.S. Code Section 1507, which says you cannot protest outside of a judge's home, you don't care. You are so blinded by whatever issue you want to see protected, enhanced, advanced in the culture that you're willing to break the law. 
Now, the problem is not just the lawbreaker, it's the law enforcers. When they decide to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear toward a protester and not act it out, what they're doing is they're sending a message to this generation and the up-and-coming generation that the law is a farce. It doesn't mean anything. It's to be broken at anyone's whim or whimsy. And whatever you want is completely and totally justifiable. Add to that now, to this seven-layer cultural salad, the whole idea that we're going to, quote, defund the police. Are there bad police? Yes. They're bad talk show hosts. There's bad lawyers. There's bad... Bad pastors. Well, there's bad in every single group of culture. But when you do- a lot of bad pastors. <laughs> <laughs> but when you say we're going to defund them, a lot of bad pastors. <laughs> we could do a whole hour on that. But going back to the well, bad, that's actually a, I like I that idea. Too. But the pastors, not the pastors, the police. They got me all off here. The police. If you're going to say we're going to defund them because they're all reprobates, they're all evil. Well, first of all, that's too broad a brush, and it's absolutely simply not true. Well, uh, let me interrupt. Let me. Please. Interrupt. What's the net gain if you truly believe we should defund police? Excellent. Are these people, I mean, for the life of me, social workers going to a domestic dispute, good luck. I mean, what, what's their intent? Socialism. I mean, if you want me to just narrow it down to one response. I mean, you I would say, response. yes, it's evil all the yeah. time. But I would say it's a Marxist ideology <laughs> that you don't have a police force and you let people become their own individualized police force. But here's the deal. If you're going to look at cultural opinions out there, if you want to look at polling data, overwhelmingly Americans want the police, that they want the police to be there when they're in trouble, when they have to call out for help, when they want somebody to be their kind of protector. But when you move, and I hate to say this because it's all so trendy, but Michael, ideas have consequences. This is philosophy 101. Good ideas have good consequences. Yeah. Bad ideas have bad consequences. Marxism is a horrible, in fact, I'll be bolder. It's a hellish idea. And this idea that you have to create a victim and a victor, the oppressor and the oppressed, the idea that there has to be a class of people that rule over all others, these are the tendril outreaches of that ideology. Now, you and I are of a certain age where we would have thought, this is never going to happen in these United States of America, right? We went through the Cold War, never going to happen whatsoever. And I think what happened is when we looked at that rebellion that was going on in the 60s and the 70s, these were the college students who have now grown up to be the college professors who are fomenting these Marxist ideas. So they grew up, but they didn't grow out of their ideas. And we're seeing that manifest in the culture today. What's wrong with our country that suddenly now we've got fertilized fields that are receptive to these kinds of ideas? That I can't put my finger on. So I guess for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It now means that a clear voice of critical thinking and a biblical worldview is probably needed now more than ever, because otherwise, Michael, where's the restraint? Where's the pushback to be able to say this far and no farther? Or your idea is bad, and let me teach you the consequences of your bad idea. I want to go back idea. to you cited 18 U.S. Code 1507, picketing or parading, because when this was you know, tossed around, I thought, I'm going to go back and read this thing. It's only a paragraph. Whoever... With the intent of interfering with, obstructing, or impeding mm -hmm. the administration of justice, or with the intent of influencing any judge, juror, witness, or court officer in the discharge of his duty, pickets or parades in or near a building housing a court of the United States, or in or near a building or residence occupied or used by such judge, juror, witness, or court officer, or with such intent, uses any sound truck, boy, talk about history, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or similar device or resorts to any other demonstration in or near such building or residence, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned, not for more than one year or both. Nothing in this section shall interfere with or prevent 
the exercise by any court of the United States of its power to punish for contempt. I mean, how how is this not clear? I was going to say, first of all, isn't it almost boring to have to review the pedantic? It's just so crystal clear. But let's talk about the philosophy behind this. Why was this in the U.S. Code in the first place? It was because we have three branches of government. Quick crash course in history here, built on the idea that man is sinful. The founders had had a king. They didn't want all that power to reside in the branch of the monarchy, so they created this system of checks and balances, understanding our basics and nature, and that because of the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches would hold each other at abeyance because without it, absolute power would corrupt absolutely. It's a brilliant idea, and we believe strongly in the separation of powers. We don't lobby judges. You can lobby your legislator because the will of the people becomes the law of the land. The founders felt the legislative branch was the most important. But you don't lobby justices. Why? Because picture what a judge's responsibility is. He stands under that famous statue of Lady Justice. She's blindfolded and she holds the scales of justice above her head. And the evidence tips the scales one way or another based on the facts, right? And so you can't lobby facts. They are. They are objective truths. You look at them and then the judges hand down the ruling within the parameters of the law. Therefore, you don't lobby. And judges are going to hand down decisions and because there's almost always two parties in any lawsuit, whether it's your local courthouse or the Supreme Court, somebody's always going to be unhappy. So the people who put that in the U.S. Code thought, no, there's going to be an action here. There's going to be a reaction because somebody's not going to like a decision. These are private citizens. They should be protected. Now, let me tell you how much that's still valid today. We had a bipartisan moment. There should be a moment of silence when that happens in Washington. But we had a bipartisan moment where a Democrat mm. and a Republican on the Senate side <laughs> quickly proposed legislation to offer extra protection for the U.S. Supreme Court justices. Boom. Pass lickety slip. Then on the other side, Tom Cotton on the House introduced legislation that said, let's make sure we put a hedge of protection around any person who works in the federal government because we are in a period of lawlessness and nobody should be violated within their own private and personal space. And I have to tell you again, bipartisan support for these kinds of proposals. So what we've got is a fraction, a fraction of the population that's decided the law does not apply to them. And that takes me back to your first question, which is lawlessness. And the antithesis of lawlessness is righteousness. So whenever you see lawlessness, it's opposed to the idea of good deeds. And these are the two things that are at war with one another right now. Okay, take a breath. <laughs> Help us. You know, we're the average Christian in the average church and the average pew in the country. We still love God. We still love our community. We still want our school board to, you know, be good. And yet this is so out of control. Mm -hmm. I, I made a comment to our church and I got a little bit of blowback, but as you and I have talked before, I don't care. <laughs> but I made the comment, if you're not homeschooling or in a tutorial, you're crazy. Yeah. And I'm not disparaging all Christian schools or all public systems, but I'm saying you don't have time as a homemaker, a young couple with three kids in elementary and middle school. You don't have time to fight this mm -hmm. fight. Other people got to fight it. Now, I love that these mothers are you know, up in arms and they're trying to fight it, but also go, you're impacting your kids in a, a consequential way that you may or not be aware of, and maybe that's somebody else's fight. That being said, how do you stay in the battle, Janet, without getting so co-opted that now you're, you know, you're a fighter, not a mom and dad raising your kids, yeah. or you're, a, and same in the church. Yeah, I don't want our people to go out and march around and protest peacefully. I want them to love God, to share Christ with their friends, to be good moms and dads and parents, yeah. to teach their kids how to navigate the university. Yeah. I mean, am I, am I crazy? No, not at all. What? Probably. But. No, not at all. In fact, it's such a very <laughs> astute observation on your part. So here's where I take comfort. We've been here before. 
I look at how God's people prospered in captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah sends this letter and says, here's what I want you to do when you're in captivity. And he tells them to go ahead and have kids, plant their gardens, and seek the welfare of the city. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. Fast forward to first century Rome. Christians are so hated that they're either thrown to the lions, they're killed by gladiators, so they have to meet in the caves in Rome. And that's where we find the ichthus carved in the stone in Rome. So we've been here before. We are (laughs) opponents of the culture by design. We are working through this culture. We are not permanently planted in this culture. And if we're doing it right, Michael, we are going to be standouts in the culture because we're not of this world. Our worldview isn't the same. Our ideas aren't the same. Now, that's where the delicious challenge comes in. So because we're by design countercultural, how do we engage this culture? And by the way, on that note, how does somebody evangelize without engaging? I'm not going to send a note in the mail and say, here, here's the four spiritual laws. It's a relationship. I've got to connect with people. I've got to start to hear where they're coming from, meeting them in the marketplace, right? And so that means a cultural engagement by mandate. And John 17, when Jesus is talking to his daddy, oh, how gracious God was to allow us to be a silent observer in that prayer as he's on his way to the cross. My prayer is Mm -hmm. not that you take them out of the world. That mess is exactly where we're called to go. Let me go back to your observations about moms and dads, because I think that really is a classic textbook example. What I love is that this is happening organically. There is no 501c3 tax-exempt organization in D.C. that called the moms and dads of America and said, show up at the school board meeting. What happened is this was a wonderful takeaway from COVID, if one can find a wonderful takeaway from COVID. And this is, mom and dad suddenly had the best parent-teacher conference they've ever had in their life. They walked past the laptop on their dining room table. They hit the pause button and said, what, 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 you're teaching my child that because of the color of his skin, he is either oppressed or the oppressor? We don't teach that in my house. We believe in Imago Dei, that everybody has the image of God, that we are fearfully, wonderfully made, all precious, all equal in his sight. That's an antithetical worldview, and you're teaching my baby that? Or they're teaching rebellion to my child. Forget that God created you, molded you, male and female. He made them both. You get to decide, Genesis 3, we shall be like gods. You get to decide whether you're a boy or a girl. And we're going to help you. See this closet? We have this whole closet at our school where you can come and change your clothes when you get to school to be the boy you want to be or the girl you want to be. And moms and dads go, wait, wait, wait a minute. No baby was assigned their gender. It was pretty self-evident. And for the record, no member of government was in the delivery room. They don't belong to you. They are God-given to me. And then I give them to the school in what I call a lend-lease program, but you get to give them back. So what's happening is that even if they're not a follower of Jesus Christ from the East to the West, Michael, moms and dads are showing up fighting for their families. I think that's God fingerprinted. I think there's a natural desire for moms and dads to stand Mm. in front of a running train to fight for their children. And when they see the world moving from education to indoctrination, something is happening. So there's the conundrum that you started with, with the school system. So for moms... It's not moved. It is indoctrination. 100%. It is indoctrination. 100%. So you you talk about in front of a train for your kids. I'm going to get in front of trying to get formula for my child now. Seriously. I mean, who would have thunk we'd be here? Well, it, that's exactly right. It's a, uh, I, that's okay. a whole hour program in and of itself. I'm, <laughs> I'm way off script. Okay. I do want to bring a point. We had a guest on, Steve Miller. If you've had not had him on, you might take a look at his stuff. But he wrote a book called 12 Mega Clues that Jesus' return is nearer than mm-hmm. ever. Your brother, friend, and mine, Ron Rhodes, and Irvin Lutzer wrote these over-the-top endorsements. And I went, okay. 
if Ron Rose says this is the most important book on prophecy this year, I'm going to buy it and read it. So I have him on the program, and I said, okay, I'm going to joust your title, 12 Mega Clues, Jesus' Return is Nearer and Nearer. I said, A, that's clickbait, because salvation history, every year we live, Christ's return is closer than ever. <laughs> but he came back with an interesting comment in, of the 12. He talked about COVID. And, you know, stupid me, I'm slow to learn. He said, Michael, COVID taught us that a handful of people with fear control the world. Yes, absolutely. He said, never in our lifetimes have we understood this like we are today. Now, maybe 1940s, we often go back to pre-World War II. I mean, here we have a German annihilating Jews, the final solution. Uh, This could be the Antichrist. I was a pastor in the 1940s. I may well have been preaching, you know, signs of the Antichrist. Who knows? Be that as it may, now we're looking at the, and it's so striking. We talked about birth pangs Mm. and the contractions get more and more intense and closer together before the final birth. But I was struck by his observation. I know you've had probably a half a dozen or more programs just on this topic about the fear that COVID engendered and how a handful of people controlled our work, controlled our attitudes, turned into entitlement, turned into PPP, turned into all these things. And we just kind of yawned and said, well, we have to do this because some might get sick. Exactly right. I had Steve on. Excellent book. I strongly recommend it to all our friends listening. But let me tell you what I observed. And that is, you know, Scripture calls the sheep. And it isn't just because I happen to have some. I have to tell you, I understand the nature of sheep. It is no compliment, all right? They don't have a single brain cell among them. They cluster together. God designed them so that they don't have any natural defenses when they cluster together in a herd. You know what they do? They stamp their foot on the ground. That's all they do. They don't bite. They don't bark. They don't do anything. So being called a sheep, not a compliment. We were sheepish. Not a good picture. Not a good picture. We had the government come along and say, we have decided for your safety and security. Hold on to that thought. Safety and security that you cannot gather together in the Lord's house. Okay. Safety and security. That's that whole idea of saying to the culture, we're going to offer you protection. We're going to offer you cover, but you're going to have to do what we tell you to do. How many times have we sold our soul figuratively, if not literally, because we were promised safety and security? So what I took away from this was, oh my These inalienable rights that we hold so dear, that particularly the first right, that First Amendment, the peg on which all other liberties are hung, unbelievably fragile, that the stroke of a government official's pen and we lose it completely. So, and I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, and that's okay. But I have to tell you, God bless those men who said, no, I'm not bending my knee to Caesar. Christ is the head of this church. Now, they went overboard to try to accomplish as much as they could, six feet apart, cleaning, filters, the whole nine yards. And after a while, it was like, it was ludicrous. And I and I will give you the ludicrous nature to this day. Now we've got people, you go into some places, you wear a mask, you go into other places, you don't wear a mask. The six feet, not so much anymore in other places, absolutely violative if you're closer than six feet. Now Johnson & Johnson is saying, mm, maybe we had some problems with blood clots. So maybe questioning is not such a bad idea. But what the bigger concern was when I was a kid, the verse that bothered me the most out of all scripture after I came to faith in Christ was that the day was going to come when even the righteous would be deceived. And I can't tell you the hours I spent thinking, how does somebody who has the the imputed righteousness wow. of Jesus Christ get 
deceived. And I, I think God has used that in my life because I came to Washington, which is a town filled with deception, and I can begin to see how easy it is. But I'll tell you, Michael, if we're not planted in God's word, one of my favorite verses is Colossians. See to it that you're not taken captive through vain and hollow philosophies predicated on this world rather than on the word of yeah, God. Yeah. The drift is not just theological drift in the church. It's the drift of hearing the siren song of the culture and thinking that they offer safety and security, and they don't. All right. I got to shift gears because I want to talk to you. I want to get some help from you about, and you've been in journalism and Christian reporting and on media a lot longer than you know I could ever envision in my own life. But Janet, what happened to journalism? <laughs> and we shifted to op-ed everything. Yeah. And I, I still remember early on before cable, we had three mainstream channels and UHF if you had a good enough antenna. Mm-hmm. And when I was young in high school and college, I was the weird kid that liked the McNeil Lair report. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I liked watching those guys that yeah. weren't, you know, the camera angles were terrible. They were boring. It's all good out. But they talked about content. NPR in its early days, albeit very liberal, at least talked about content. There was a time when Cokie Roberts and Nina Totenberg and Bob Edwards were pretty decent journalists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something happened along the way. I mean, we knew they were left and we understood that. But what's happened, and even the, and I won't name the Christian publications, I can't read them anymore, Janet. Mm-hmm. They're no longer reporting. It's just an opinion piece. And back to Journalism 101, what happened? And then help our friends understand, how do you read critically? And, and don't hear me wrong. Conservative Christians get in the same trap. We get in the same trap. Absolutely. And we become you know op-ed pieces as opposed to... Okay, here are the facts about you know, uh, the, who's this one medical doctor, female doctor that got fired from her hospital and she continued to treat COVID patients with a certain protocol and they all got better. But be that as it may, it wasn't part of what you know CDC and Fauci and others uh, permitted her to right. do. And she's still fighting the fight. Right. What happened to Journalism 101 and how do we get to op-ed is all we hear. I think there's a couple of reasons. And let me hearken back to the idea. You made the statement, and I want to back it up as being factual, about the leftist drift. There was a study that was done years ago by two fellows called Lichter and Roth, and they surveyed what the worldview was of the reporters, right? Every one of us has a worldview. A Supreme Court justice doesn't shed his. A reporter doesn't shed hers. Everybody has a particular worldview. But in the world of journalism, unless you're writing for the opinion page, you are supposed to report objective facts. Lichter and Roth found out that the overwhelming worldview for the reporter was to the left of center, that they were ardently pro-abortion, they were strongly in support of gay rights. So that is the grid through which they push their view. And there probably was a lot of chafing and pulling back the reins and trying desperately to maintain objectivity, but the dam broke. I don't know when or how other than it was a form of cultural desperation, that suddenly there was the recognition that if you could take and take your objective reporting and make it opinionizing instead, you could mold and shape a culture. You could affect the outcome of an election. You could get people to believe a certain stripe of what you wanted people to believe as truth, as opposed to letting the consumer of the news decide for him or herself. So let me give you a classic example. When the incident took place on January 6th on Capitol Hill, and you can think of that what you will. I'm just interested in the reporting aspect of this. It was egregiously inaccurate. And I want to give you a couple examples. 
So there was an April release that came out of Washington, D.C., and they talked about how many people died on the Hill on Capitol Hill. Every time I hear that, my back goes up because I thought, wait a minute, that's not factual. So there were two protesters, a fellow that was 55 and one that was 50, who died of cardiovascular disease. The coroner reported that it was a natural death. Nope, didn't make any difference to the press. They reported it as people who were killed in the riot or the insurgents or whatever word you want to use on January 6th. Then there was another one saying that a girl from Georgia, she was 34 years old, apparently suffered a, quote, medical emergency. Turns out it was an accidental overdose, but that didn't stop the New York Times from reporting on January 15th that she died in a crush of fellow rioters during their attempt to fight through a police line. In fact, that narrative got picked up by prosecutors who then used it against those who were there on January 6th. The only person who died January 6th was an Air Force veteran who was shot at point-blank range by a Capitol Hill police officer. No examination, no vetting of the facts, no prosecution. It was a political witch hunt. It is why there's a hearing still going on today. So this goes to your point, and I give this just as an example, that this is not about objective reporting. It isn't a matter of fact-finding. It's a matter of using the news as a bludgeoning tool. Now, add to this the ascendancy of social media. That has been the biggest game changer. Whether it's Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and there are all the times they come to testify on Capitol Hill. I'm super glued to the hearings. I wish I had a nickel every time they said, I'll have to get back to you. I'll have to check on that, which is called a nuanced move where they're not answering. And yet we know their influence. We know their relationship with foreign countries, many of them rogue nations. We now know, particularly because Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter, that two thirds of the people on Twitter are bots. We know also that Facebook absolutely came out and had a phony lobbying group to try to influence some elections. Now, they pandered themselves as the news, and then let's go to Google, that great big monster search engine. Google is not a search engine. Google predicates on ranking. So now when you go to Google, you will get all the left-of-center sources as your first source, and the non-discerning consumer of the news goes, oh, that's my source, and it's all New York Times, Washington Post, L.A., Atlantic Magazine, all left-of-center publications, and that becomes your aggregate of news. So I'm going to go back to what I said before, Michael, from my vantage point, the only thing I can think is that this is a desperation move. This is the death rattle of people who are so desperate to redefine the culture, to move it in a different direction, that they will practice situational ethics. All of this becomes justifiable because the desired end is a radically different culture than the one we have today. The press used to be called the hounds. They barked when the facts weren't right. They would bark back and say, these are the facts. These are now lapdogs. They are no longer hounds. They are water carriers for whatever political party or policy they want to see advanced. That becomes a challenge for the believer. This is why more than ever before, we need to be Bereans. If we don't test all things, we will be sucked into the vortex of this misinformation. We are people who live on truth. We follow one whose name is truth. We are to be defenders and declares of the truth. But the presupposition in that is we know mm. truth. So you know what that means? If you're going to spend 30 seconds on a Facebook page and you think that's the news, then you're going to be very confused. You say all the time when you preach, and I absolutely love it, don't let the world define your theology. I would take that and expand it and say, don't let the world define your news. Trust, verify, test all things, do your homework. When this whole thing came out, I have a friend I won't name. He used to be with a publication that doesn't exist, and now he's with the aggregate for writers now. 
Substack. Oh, yeah. You know, it's basically yeah. a paid way to put your words out. And it's good. He's very contrarian. He's smart. He's brilliant. He's a clever writer. But when I tried to talk to him about opinion versus journalism, in fact, he has some nuanced answers to use a word you used, but I find it striking. We are more interested in what Joy Bear says <laughs> or Mark Buckaber doesn't say mm-hmm. than we are someone who is at least critically. I've been struck with Bill Maher in the last, you know, eight, 10 months. I mean, mm-hmm. Bill Maher stumbling on the truth and you know, he seems to be standing, you know, he hasn't lost his HBO channel yet. Maybe he will. But I, I just find it striking. Um, I think well, a young person that I know told me, and of course, this is gone now. You, you have data, I'm sure. But um, for a long time, the comedy channel was the way most that age group, that segment got yeah. their news, quote unquote. Exactly right. And now I don't know what aggregate they go to. We don't have a whole lot of reliable places to go. I won't say the names, but I have an aggregate of things I look at each day. And then after about 20 minutes, I'm done because I can't take anymore. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also think that we fall captive to the use of language. Somebody once said that we tend to look through language and not realize the power of language. So let me give you a case that my husband had. He defended a secretary in a major newspaper in the Midwest. She was a secretary. She provided zero content. But on the weekend, she was a volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center. So the newspaper fired her. Now, they looked the other way when reporters, not secretaries, reporters were marching in a gay pride parade, but they went after her because she offered her services as a counselor at a pregnancy help center. The other thing, too, was during the course of the deposition, Craig discovered, again, the power of language. So you look at the subject of abortion, and it was their directive that pro-lifers were only to be called anti-abortion, never pro-life. So here's the worldview question. As a Christian, if you look at the protagonist and antagonist approach, in the pro-life movement, the baby is the protagonist. The antagonist is the one who sees the baby as an encumbrance and wants it to be eradicated. To the pro-abortion worldview, the pro-lifer is the antagonist, and the protagonist is the woman who wants to do what's right with her own body. So all of that takes some sophisticated thinking. So when the Bible tells us that we're supposed to renew our mind, this is the kind of stuff. In in fact, I'm just give me two seconds on my soapbox where I am right now. And I know you're because I follow your preaching so thoroughly. This is the day and age where if we don't get off a diet of milk, we're done. It's time to get to a diet of meat. We're to hold fast to that, which is good. We're to put away our childish things. Michael, if we don't get some spiritual heft on our bones right now, we are done with. We are so separate and distinct from a culture that is decaying. By the way, one of the best books I've ever read recently by Cal Thomas, he did an oversight of past empires. So he looked at the Roman Empire, looked at the Byzantine Empire, absolutely fabulous. And what he discovered is in the decompensation of these cultures, there were commonalities that weave their way all the way through. Licentiousness, sexual immorality, all the things we're seeing, and the average life of an empire is 250 years. We are rapidly approaching the 250th birthday of America. What are we seeing? Lawlessness, licentiousness. I get asked all the time when I'm talking to Dr. Mark Hitchcock, Dr. Ron Rhodes, all of our other prophecy friends, is America mentioned in the end times? And to the person, no, they cannot find any reference specifically to the United States. Is it because we fall like these other empires? Is it because we have decided that entertainment in the Colosseum, the cry for bread and circus, and Christians are no different than anybody else on this? In fact, I'll give you a stat. Do you know that a new poll just came out that people are more interested in the Johnny Depp trial than they are in the leak from the United States Supreme Court? 
Let that sink in for a minute. What does that tell you? Crying for bread and circus in the Colosseum. So Christians had better develop a different appetite and they'd better start thinking critically or we are done with. We are distinctive. We are the salt. We are the light. We've heard this ad nauseum since we're knee high to a grasshopper in Sunday school, but the application is more profound and more necessary now than it's ever been performed. We're giving up the light. We want to be accepted by the culture. We don't want to stand out. We just want to blend in. And when that happens, whether it's from the pulpit on a Christian campus or in our home, we're done. We've given up the gospel. And and this is my great fear, and that's that's where I know I am a dinosaur. And I keep telling our our little church, I say, guys, I've not used this word evil in the forty some years I've been trying to teach the Bible more in the past year. I, I use the word evil all the time now. There's no other explanation for it. That's why I asked about the outcome of some of these things and immigration. Goodness gracious, I don't care where you are on the continuum. The number of humanity coming across the border, let's set aside the criminal element of drugs and fentanyl and trafficking, just the problem of humanity. We're not interested in any of this. We're right. just opening the gates. And, and people are like, well, we have to take care of these people. And I'm like, sure, but there's got to be a process. And you fast forward with some of these unbridled policies we have. You know, I'm a fatalist anymore now. I'm like, the church is done. America's done. I don't like to say it, but that's where I, I, in my heart of hearts, I'm going, I don't, Lord, if you don't do some type of, you know, I hate the word revival the way it's used, but revival and revolution in the heart of the believer to, and I tell our people, you know, you don't have to be mad. You can smile when you talk about your opinion. You can smile when you engage a person that doesn't agree with you. And if they get angry, that just, you know, proves the point. But it's yep. so difficult for most people who are just trying to make a living. They're trying to love mm-hmm. their kids. They're trying to make the soccer game. They're trying to pay the bills and maybe make a mortgage. Maybe they're innovative and trying to get out of debt. Who knows? But they're so overwhelmed by this information age run amok that we're lost, Janet. And you got people like you and maybe me and my little sphere yelling at the top of our lungs, like Proverbs <laughs> 8. Um, That's exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I don't know what my. There's not a question there. It's just Michael's little rant. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, but can I can I back up your rant because I absolutely agree with you. Here's, of course. Here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping there's a remnant. I'm hoping there will be some of David's men who will not bow their knee. I'm hoping that there are some who don't care what the costs are. I talk about the persecuted church all the time. I just told the story of a Christian college student in Nigeria. Uh, And Nigeria is a horrible place right now to follow Christ. 50 to 70,000 Christians have lost their lives in the last few years. This girl was taken. She was told she had to marry a Muslim. In that country, you give up your faith. You have to assume your husband's faith. She was a Christian. She wouldn't marry a Muslim. They stoned her to death and then set her body on fire. Now, I tell that story only because she was more in love with Jesus and didn't care if it cost her her life than anything else. And the problem is, I think we are more in love with the idea of being accepted by the culture. Nobody wants to be called a transphobe or a homophobe or whatever phobe is the topic du jour of the day. We absolutely want to be accepted. And you talked about that person who just wants to get to the soccer club and put the bread on the table and live their life. But the problem is this. The wolf isn't over there. The wolf is outside your front door. You can try to live this life of simple, contemplative, sweet preciousness that we all long for, 
But what if Michael and I were to tell you that the enemy is advancing? You then have a choice. It's like being told here on the East Coast, we have hurricane warnings from Cat 1 to Cat 5. If you're told there's a Cat 5 hurricane come, you put up the storm windows, you make sure you get the supplies, you got the batteries, you do everything to prepare. For a believer in this day and age, not to prepare for the storm that is coming is the definition of naivete. If we don't do some personal inventory about Jesus being in and of himself, totally sufficient, no matter what, whether we're fired from our job, whether the government comes after us because we keep our churches open, whether we don't use the right pronoun and we're going to get fired because we're not going to acquiesce to some lie. I'm not going to tell a boy he's a girl. That's a lie. I'm betraying God's truth. Whatever it costs us, are we willing to pay the price? And you talked about the fact that people are praying for revival. If you're a good student of the movements of revival, Michael, so often there is revolt, revolution, and persecution that precedes a revival. So I don't think we really pray for revival because we don't want that other stuff that comes with it. If we're serious about revival, <laughs> it means saying no when we want to say yes. It means being outside of our comfort zone. It means rough stuff to be torn down and rebuilt again so that Jesus is sufficient. That's a hard prayer. I don't know if we're really praying that. I remember teaching through Judges twice now. I taught through Judges mm. after 9-11 when we were still up at Northern Virginia. And I remember that passage where he says that the way they're going to take these countries is by fighting that this generation would be taught war. Mm, mm. What an uncomfortable phraseology. But then you see those seven cycles and judges where it gets mm -hmm. so bad in their sin and the oppression comes, they cry out for justice, for freedom, for help. God intervenes. A judge comes along. Maybe they do well. Maybe they don't do so well. They go through a hellacious time. Yep. And then there's a period of peace and rest. And it's fascinating watching that cycle of judges, as you well know, by the time you get, you start out nationally, by the time you get to the end of the book, it's individuals. Mm -hmm. And and it's egregious. I mean, Sam, we love the story of Samson. Samson was crazy. Samson ran <laughs> out after himself and his own needs and his own wants. He had no interest in the nation of Israel. And so even when you had God intervening when Israel cried out for help. The other thing, I, I your comment about America not being mentioned, I often tell our church, if Israel is one of the oldest nations on the planet, it's the size of Connecticut, look at their history. It's not enviable. And for That's most right. of their history, they have been in exile, persecuted. I've read recently, I don't know if you've read this stuff, they're saying it could be over 8 million Jews that were lost in the Holocaust, not the typical 6 million number we hear tossed oh, wow. around. Awful. Of course, some think there's not a Holocaust, right? I mean, you go down the line with the persecution that the Jewish nation, the Jewish people have endured, and I'm going, who do we think we are? Yeah, exactly. That in 240 some years and change, we're going to survive this? Mm -hmm. I don't want to be chicken little, Janet, but I almost feel like the sky's falling. And I, I don't know, you know, I hope I'm wrong. Boy, I hope I'm wrong. I don't think you're being a pessimist. Our dear friend Ann Graham Lott says that when you study how God brings judgment, here's what he does. The whole word of God is filled with stories of God warning and warning and warning and warning before he sends judgment. I think you'd have to be suffering from the Rip Van Winkle syndrome right now if you don't sense God's warning. <laughs> 
We've taken the institution of marriage. We've taken the issue of human sexuality, all of which were designed by God in a place of perfection. We're redefining, and now we're thinking to ourselves that God is just going to look the other way. And again, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. One of my favorite verses, particularly for these days, but of power, love, and of a sound mind, some translations say self-discipline. We need that now more than ever before. But I think if we're going to be like the men of the tribe of Issachar, we have to know the times, we have to know what to do for the nation. And that isn't a matter of being fearful. It's a matter of being tuned in, discerning. And I love what the founder of the Salvation Army said, before the sun sets, let your feet be swift to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's one takeaway for this decaying Mm -hmm. culture. There is no ambiguity that they're crying out for God. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's trial is a perfect example of filling your heart with everything, drugs, (sighs) sex, rock and roll, everything you could want, star power. And they're sitting vivisecting each other on the stand week after week after week. And you know what they need? Jesus. Not a settlement in a libel suit. They need Jesus. So if we would just get our heads out of our own comfort zone and say boldly, oh God, open the door of conversation for me to talk to somebody today. Everybody's hurting. The American Psychological Association says stress levels in America are at an all-time high. Alarming, the author said. 81% of America right now is dealing with stress. What an opportunity for the believer. So I'm not discouraged. It's like, oh, thank you, God. You left no ambiguity on the place and the part we could play in history right now. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I need to talk to you more often. Okay, so I asked Hannah, my executive producer, I said, Hannah, I want what, what question do you want me to ask Janet as we wind our time down? She says, when you were raising your kids, you were super involved in their school, president of PTA and so forth. What advice do you give moms today who want to raise their kids with biblical truths but are just being bombarded by the culture? Yeah, amen. First of all, Hannah, thank you. What a superb question. A, stay at it. Here's what I know. You don't parent in absentia. I love the idea that moms and dads are the best department of health, education, and welfare. There's a whole uh, principle in psychology (laughs) called first impressions, right? So whoever gets to our child's heart first leaves the first impression. Right outside your little tent, the world is roaring. They can't wait to get to your child's heart. And say to a five-year-old, Michael, we have this as documented evidence, a five-year-old, who are you sexually attracted to? My five-year-olds didn't brush their teeth on a regular basis, let alone who they were sexually attracted to. So if mom and dad can get there first, and you, brother, are working your way through Proverbs right now, we just have to go in the first chapter and we talk about knowledge and wisdom and mom and dad and teaching their kids if we can get there first, if we can be obedient to Deuteronomy, if we can recognize what First Thessalonians says, if we put into place that idea that your kids were divinely appointed to be in your house, that God has given you the profound and unchangeable responsibility responsibility of being their mother and their father, not their best friend. You weren't elected. You were appointed to this position. And if you get there first and teach them the principles and precepts so they happily hang it around their necks, then you know what? The world comes and they learn to deflect. They learn to bounce. They learn to be Paul at the Areopagus and say, you know, I hear what you're saying, but there's a different way to look at it. If we get there first, it'll stick forever. But the problem is, I think we've relegated it. And even in the church, we've relegated it to the Iwana Club. We've relegated it to Sunday school class. We've turned it over to the youth pastor. Great, all supportive. 
never designed to take your place. So this means rolling up your sleeves, doing a personal inventory on your life. How much time are you spending, mom and dad, on social media? How many Netflix films are you watching? Did you turn off the world? Do you're having quiet time around the kitchen table? I know all that sounds supercilious and hyper-spiritual, but you know what? We've been hearing this for years and years and decades and decades in the church. You know why? Because it's truth, because it works, because it's necessary. And now more than ever before, when the culture is violating the innocent and the purity of our kids as young as five with drag shows, you better get there first because if not, your child in this culture war is going to be taken captive exactly as it says in Colossians. And from time to time in the sermon, when I give people a message like that, I go, another cheery Michael Easley sermon. Janet Partial, I want, we'll have all the information about Janet on show notes. If you don't know her, you need to learn about her. Her newest book, Buyer Beware, Finding Truth in the marketplace ideas anywhere you buy a book any any outlet you can buy it online she and craig are, are dear friends they're fighting the good fight i can't tell you how much i appreciate you guys and look forward every time we get to talk and love you like crazy and thank you for taking some time to jump on our podcast oh brother i'll tell you what you are a rare breed and a most valued one thank you for the privilege of being with you i treasure these times Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.